Hi, I'm Greg Johnson, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Christians have had a hard time figuring out how to love their gay neighbor. Sometimes Christians make excuses for their lack of love by pointing out that same-sex sexual activity conflicts with the biblical sexual ethic. While that's true, it fails to justify rude, demeaning, and unloving behavior. It turns out that Jesus didn't carve out any exceptions to his love ethic. So what does it look like for the church to love gay people? Is it right to expect a gay person's sexual orientation to change as they follow Jesus? Does following Jesus lead gay people to go straight? Greg Johnson is the lead pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, and he's the author of a book called Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. Much of Greg's argument is contained in the title of the book. He says Christians should stop focusing on making people straight and instead welcome gay Christians into communities that encourage them to follow Jesus. In recent years, Greg has become a controversial figure, and to be honest with you, I don't quite get it. There must be issues that I'm just unaware of. But I have read his book twice and had a conversation with him that you're getting ready to listen to. His arguments are well-reasoned, he's gracious toward his critics, he's committed to the biblical sexual ethic, and he's serious about following Jesus. Let's hop into our conversation with Greg Johnson. Hey, Greg, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Hey, thanks, Keith. I'm glad to be here. I think we're roughly the same age. I might be a couple years older than you, but that puts us squarely in the middle of Gen X and means that we grew up or came of age in the 80s. And those were the times I'm sure you remember of New Coke, Michael Jackson, yuppies, the rise of the religious right, all that kind of stuff. Latchkey kids. Yeah, latchkey kids. We're cynical, a little bit suspicious, and we're the overlooked generation, right? right? But the way I remember it is that it was a time of optimism, and yet we had our own things that we were scared of. And one of those things was the Cold War. There was this idea that Russia was going to nuke us, or it was the Soviet Union back in the day. But another big one was AIDS. I don't know if people can really appreciate how scary it was for a long time. For a while, people didn't know how you contracted AIDS. There was like, hey, you better not go into a public bathroom because you might get it. It was obviously hitting gay men, and there was a lot of anger and fear directed toward gay men. And unfortunately, a lot of that came from the church. So I remember Jerry Falwell, who is the leader of the moral majority, and he said, AIDS is not just punishment for homosexuals. 
It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Now, during this time, you're growing up in the Washington, D.C. area. You're a high school kid. You're an atheist, or at least that's how you think of yourself at the time, and you're gay. What's that like? Like, What's your memories of being a high school kid, a gay kid in the time of AIDS? I first realized I was gay when I was 11. It was at a wedding reception in some kind of fundamental Baptist church fellowship hall. And I realized there was one of the groomsmen that I could not get my eyes off of. And then I started to notice people noticing me staring and felt a lot of shame at that. I kind of wondered, you know, I've been having these experiences, but it was at that point that it hit me. And I had heard a family member talking about how the groom had a brother that had been disowned by the family because they were Christians and the son was gay. And so they had kind of kicked him out of the family. And so here I am, you know, this 11 year old hitting puberty, realizing I'm gay and in this Baptist fellowship hall, thinking these people probably all hate me because they're Christians. And so it was a rough time. That would have been 1983, I think. In 83, it was a hundred gay men a week dying from HIV, from AIDS. And by the end of that decade, it was a thousand men every week dying of AIDS. It was just a Holocaust. And I remember thinking that I was lucky that I was a little bit younger and I had never been sexually active. And all these folks older than me were getting sick and dying. There was really no treatment until protease inhibitors were developed in the 1990s. It was a time of a lot of fear and a lot of shame. I remember the first day of seventh grade covering the inside of my locker with pinups of Madonna. That would have been back in the holiday, right before Like a Virgin, early Madonna. Of course, having no idea that Madonna would become a gay icon. I was trying to cover up as best I could, make myself look like a straight kid so nobody would wonder. But, you know, things like being in the locker room in middle and high school was always terrifying. You know, you were always worried that you'd see something that might affect you, that you might be found out. So this is something you kept under wraps. You didn't tell anyone at this point what you were experiencing, right? This was your personal secret? Yeah, that was very much a secret. And, you know, I think there are people who suspected, you know, I tried to have a girlfriend briefly in high school as a cover up, but it didn't really work because she wanted to make out. And I just wanted to hang around and talk about politics or stuff. You know, it was, <laughs> there was no chemistry on my side, but yeah, you know, I didn't tell anyone until after I became a Christian, I told my campus minister and, and that enabled me to really open up because he was great guy with crew. And that enabled me to open up with a lot of other friends in my campus ministry. And from that point on, I was always known by a group of people who knew my story, who I could turn to if I ever needed help. But in high school, it was a terrifying secret. And the average age from when somebody realizes or first starts experiencing homoerotic temptation until they realize they're gay and first tell someone, it's something like seven or eight years on average, which is a lot of time for shame to do its work in the soul of a young person. So you evidently became a Christian in college from what you just said, because you were involved in a campus ministry. Where did you go to school and how did that go down that the gay atheist kid comes to follow Jesus. <laughs> right? It's got to be a good story. It started in high school because I remember having a real existential crisis around 11th grade where I was questioning whether human life had any meaning, whether it was wrong to take human life, whether justice had any reality or whether it's just the preference for how we like to do things. And then of course, a hundred billion years from now, the stars have all gone out. No one will ever know that we ever existed. And 
I was doing a lot of reading. I was doing a lot of thinking. And I came to the conclusion that, and it was as much intellectual as emotional, that there has to be good and evil because you have to be able to distinguish a head of cabbage from a head of a child. There, if it's just matter plus time plus chance, then there's no way to distinguish that. And that means that there is actual evil and there is actual good. And I was sliding down the slippery slope of the moral argument for the existence of God. And so by the time I got to college, I was no longer thinking of myself as an atheist. I was believing that there was probably a God, that it was probably the God of the Bible. And that's just a new from having seen Christians sacrificing themselves for justice. But I didn't know what Christianity was. No one had ever told me about Jesus. I didn't have any Christian friends to my knowledge. I do recall a grandmother when I was a child telling me something about Jesus, but I couldn't remember what she told me or whether it applied to gay people. But went to University of Virginia, Charlottesville, studied architecture. I knew I needed to find a religious group to tell me what it's all about. And I was already convicted of my sin. I knew I was a sinner even before I was a Christian. I knew that I was defective and I didn't choose to be defective. I just was. And so I remember looking at all these campus ministries and there was like fellowship of Christian athletes, but I was a scrawny guy, not an athlete. And there's like the black Christian fellowship, but I was white. And there was the Catholic student association, but I wasn't Catholic. I couldn't find the ministry for gay people who want to find out what Christianity <laughs> is. But I did actually get grabbed by a bunch of campus crusaders, today's crew, who asked me if I'd like to take a survey. And I said, Sure. And they asked me if I'd be interested in a four point outline of Christianity. And I said, maybe. And somebody showed up at my dorm a few weeks later and took me through some booklet and asked me if I understood it. And I lied and said yes. And asked me if I'd ever prayed the prayer at the end. And I lied and said something. Yeah, I think I've prayed something like that before because I just didn't know what I was talking about and didn't want to look like an idiot. But got plugged into a Bible study. And it was wild that first study. They were like, hey, everybody open up your Bible to Luke 7 14. And I'm don't have a Bible. They have to, where do you get a Bible? You know, they loaned me one. And then I started looking for page 714 or whatever, because I didn't know that the Bible was broken up into books and each book starts its numbering with chapters and page numbers mean nothing. That was new to me, but I fell in love with Jesus. I remember the first time we had a Bible study called how to be sure you're a Christian. And I was sure at the end of that, that I was not yet a Christian, but was ready. And for the first time, I remember in Adobe Room 235, no longer exists, in my dorm room, getting down on my knees and for the first time, thanking God for forgiving all of my sins, not begging him to please forgive me, but thanking him that Jesus' blood covers over my sins, that he's paid the penalty I couldn't pay, that he's taken the blame for me so that I can have life. I never looked back. I knew it would be costly. But I never looked back, never regretted it. The best thing I ever did. And I'm kind of like a guy who saw a field with buried treasure and I sold everything I had and I got the treasure and I'm not giving it up for anything. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. It's a great story. I mean, shout out to all those people involved in campus ministry somewhere that are building relationships with people and not knowing where they'll go and loving the kid who shows up that doesn't have a Bible because you never know. I mean, maybe one day they'll come to follow Jesus and be used by God as a pastor or in some other way to affect a lot of other people. And it's funny how similar our stories are. Not only are we relatively close to the same age, but my wife and I, we became Christians through Campus Crusade. Neither of us came from Christian backgrounds, maybe not quite the same as yours, but definitely not church-going people. 
And we too started a relationship with Christ in college that has continued to this day. Now, when you became a Christian and got involved in crew, or that's what it's called now, did you have this sense that you were going to become straight? When you say you knew you were defective and knew you were a sinner, I'm interpreting that as you saying, hey, I was gay and I didn't want to be gay. I had these sexual attractions toward men and I didn't want them. And so did you have this idea that, well, once I become a Christian, that'll all change? Or what were you thinking back then? It's hard to remember because I was just so filled with excitement and zeal about the gospel. I wasn't even really focused so much on my sexuality, except as something to constantly be asking God to forgive me for, because hmm. I was constantly uh, wandering in my mind. Were you asking God to change you? Yeah, I didn't know. But I do remember in college, the first kind of ex-gay book on sexuality that I read kind of said that it happened because your dad didn't play football with you enough as a child. And so you're gay because of my damaged relationship with my father. And that I remember getting really angry over that and blaming my dad for a while. That was kind of getting into some of the ex-gay stuff that was beginning to percolate. But I do remember by the time I was in seminary, I was definitely thinking of myself as an ex-gay and had a hope that perhaps my orientation would change, that I'd be able to have a wife and children and a house with a white picket fence and a very cushy architecture firm in Washington, D.C. That was the vision. God had other plans. <laughs> yeah, and I want to get to that kind of ex-gay thing that you develop in your book. But before we do, I just want to know, why didn't you come to embrace your sexual attractions and say God was okay with it? I mean, it seems like one avenue that was open to you, one path that you could have chosen to go down is to say that God is for these same-sex attractions that I'm experiencing. But somehow you didn't do that. Was that because of a book you read or because of your own conscience or a Bible study you were in? Where did you come to the point where you said, no, I don't think the traditional biblical sexual ethic allows for acting out these same-sex attractions? I read my Bible. <laughs> I remember reading even passage in Leviticus about a man sleeping with another man being an abomination. I just said, okay. Hmm. Even before I was a Christian, though, I knew how the human reproductive system was designed to work. And as I was becoming to believe in God, I was realizing we were designed and realizing that I didn't have coordinating parts with another man. And so there's that kind of just sense even before I was a Christian that this was something that was um, damaged or not working properly. But then I just took the Bible at face value. Now, later on, when kind of these kind of very sophisticated affirming books started coming out, arguing for same-sex partnering within the church, then I had to address those arguments and look at the Bible much more carefully. And I've done that pretty exhaustively. And I really feel like for me to enter into a marriage relationship with another man, a relationship that would be not abusive, that would be mutual, loving, affirming. For me to grab hold of his hand, I would have to let go of Jesus' hand. So that's just something that I, by conviction, can't do. And I don't think God would let me. I think he would bring some fatherly discipline if I went down that road. Well, that takes me back to you saying you found Jesus and sold everything to get him. And you had found the treasure in Jesus that surpassed anything that this world has to offer, including a loving relationship with a person of the same sex. Maybe it wasn't so much that that was bad as much as what you had in Jesus was better and you weren't going to let go of his hand for anything. 
Now, you have written this book that I just absolutely love. I've recommended it to so many people. It's called Still Time to Care. And I want to be clear of what it is and isn't, or at least from my perspective as the reader. It's not a biblical defense for the traditional biblical sexual ethic. You said you've thought through those issues. You've read on that extensively. But that's not what this book is about. And neither is a memoir. It's not your story as a gay man coming to follow Jesus. There are lots of good books that look in depth at the biblical arguments and that tell individual stories. And all those are really good, and I'd recommend those too. But what you've tried to do instead of either of those options is you contrast two different approaches to the way that church has approached homosexuality, and you call them caring and curing. And at the beginning of your book, you show how Christian leaders for a long time advocated an approach of caring. And then in the mid-70s, all that started to change, and Christian leaders and churches, at least a lot of them, maybe not all of them, started to try to cure homosexuals of their homosexuality, of their sexual attractions and sexual desires. Is that a fair way to characterize what you're trying to do in your book? Yeah, you know, Henry Nowen, a Catholic priest, was gay and never made it a public matter, but he was known by his friends. And he contrasted care and cure and said, you know, I always wondered if he had his own sexuality in mind when he said, we always long for cure, but often what we really need is care to be known, to be loved, to be supported, to be a part of a church family where somebody knows when your airplane is landing, when somebody realizes when you're not there and checks in on you. Those basic longings that we all have as human beings to know and be known, those are things that every Christian needs, and particularly somebody who's celibate on account of their sexual orientation. But yeah, you know, when I look at C.S. Lewis, John Stott, Billy Graham, when I look at Francis Schaeffer, I mean, these are the four big names of 20th century transatlantic evangelical Christianity and really in the world at the time. And they all espoused a view toward gay people that was not about curing, but was about caring. You know, C.S. Lewis's own best friend, Arthur, was gay. And when Arthur came out to Lewis as gay uh, around, I think it was around 1900, Lewis didn't make an issue of it. And then when Lewis became a Christian. A couple of years later, Arthur was the first person he turned to and to tell about it. You know, they vacationed together. They were best friends. The letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to Arthur Greaves have been collected in a volume and it's over 500 pages. And that's just Lewis's half of the conversation. They were constantly in contact and Lewis supported decriminalization of homosexual practice in the UK. He insisted that it was not the worst sin that greed and pride are much worse, which were, of course, much bigger, more pervasive sins in the UK in the middle of the 20th century. But yeah, Francis Schaeffer, he founded Libri Fellowship, and it became a magnet for gay people who were trying to wrestle with what they believed and whether Christianity was actually true and what that was going to mean for them. And he was very kind to them. He defended them. You know, there's a point in which we have a record of Francis Schaeffer. I think it's the first time he met with Jerry Falwell, senior, the religious right and the moral majority. And after they talked about philosophy and history and culture and ethics and all this other stuff, Jerry Falwell leaned over and said, and what do you think of homosexuals? And Schaeffer, in his classic Francis Schaeffer way, stepped back and said, well, you know, it's a very complicated issue. And Falwell shot back the rejoinder with no humor at all, saying, if I had a dog that did what those people do, I'd shoot it. And on the way out, Schaefer turned to his son and said, that man is disgusting. 
you know, he was so horrified, joking about violence against gay people. It was so out of the question. It was so far from being Christian that he had real doubts about Falwell. You know, our earliest mention of homosexuality by Billy Graham was actually during a big gay sex scandal in 1964, just weeks before the 1964 election, when one of the top advisors of Lyndon Johnson was caught in a sting having sex with another man in a YMCA restroom. And it was the kind of thing the press got hold of it. And they at first suppressed the knowledge, but then they found out a few days later that he had been arrested in the same restroom doing the same thing 10 years earlier. And this is the right-hand man of the president of the United States weeks before a re-election. <laughs> and it blew up like a nuclear cloud over Washington. Republican candidate Barry Goldwater had bumper stickers made that said, all the way with LBJ, but don't go near the YMCA. Of course, the advisor immediately resigned. But then a couple of days later, Billy Graham called the White House and he asked to speak with the president, he got on with the president. They chatted for a couple of minutes and he said, the reason I'm calling is I want you to have compassion on Walter. And Billy Graham then went and lectured. Lyndon Johnson on how we're all sinners. We're no different. He said, I know what's in a man's heart. I'm no different. He had solidarity with this poor man who had just blown up his career and his standing as a person. And Billy Graham emphasized forgiveness and compassion. That's how Jesus felt towards sinners and we're all sinners. And it was really astounding because here, this pastor to the presidents is using what leverage he had to intervene for a gay man who had just been busted having gay sex, taking it to the highest authority to intervene. That's loving someone. <laughs> you know, if Christians consistently love gay people like that, then certainly we wouldn't be hearing this constant refrain about how Christians hate gay people because the world would know otherwise. But yeah, we got all these examples of figures beforehand. Yeah, I appreciate it in the book that you kind of lay out this perspective of compassion toward gay people. And some of it I was familiar with, but quite a bit of it was new and really, really interesting. So it seems like Lewis and Schaefer and Billy Graham, they were able to say, look, this is sin. I'm not affirming it's okay, but we're going to have compassion toward people because we're all sinners and we're not going to abandon people because their sin is somehow different than ours. We're not going to turn anger or judgment against them. And they weren't trying to cure people. They were coming alongside and advocating for them, being their friend like C.S. Lewis and Arthur Greaves, standing up for them like Francis Schaeffer. But then somewhere in, say, the mid-'70s, all that began to change, right? And the emphasis moved from care to cure. What caused that change? Are you able to put your finger on it? Well, I mean, it started in the mid-'1970s when a man had a radical conversion, gay man, Frank Worthen. 40 years old, San Francisco, successful businessman, had a conversion, a radical conversion, and became a Christian. And his pastor said, you need to write down your story about how God's changing you. And he did that. Actually, he recorded it as a cassette tape and advertised it in gay magazines in the city by the bay. And people started coming to groups and he started sharing his story. Love and Action was ultimately born out of that. It was the first ex-gay ministry. And Frank said that when we founded Exodus International, which became the umbrella organization for all of these multiplying ex-gay ministries, we believed that we could cure people from gay to straight. And early on, he claimed 70% success rate at sexual orientation change. Now, 
Interestingly, he also taught a class with his wife because he married a woman on how to do an ex-gay marriage. And they advised not trying to consummate the marriage until you've been married for a full year. So Frank was never certain he'd be able to consummate his own because there was always this need to exaggerate results. And his pastor, one of his pastors, Kent Philpott, wrote a book called The Third Sex in which he outlined, he changed their names, but the stories of five or so people in love and action who had seen their sexual orientation completely change and published it through some small kind of charismatic publisher. This was all in the middle of the Jesus movement blowing up on the California coast, you know, hippies for Jesus and all of that. But as soon as this book was published, most of the people whose stories were in there contacted the publisher saying, this is not at all what we've experienced. But the problem is, even if they stopped publishing it at that point, the book had already spread across the country. And all these people were reading these miracle stories of people becoming straight through their ministries. And the ministries just popped up everywhere. And they were very different ones. Some of them were kind of deliverance ministries, praying the demons out. And some of them were much more just discipleship. Some of them were kind of trying to process how you became gay and how you can then address those issues so that you can become straight. But early on, there was a very heavy emphasis that we're going to change your sexual orientation. And even into the 1990s, I remember a Satinover book on homosexuality. It might have been in the politics of truth where he claimed ex-gay ministries have at least a 50% success rate at changing people. And, and for the highly motivated, it's as high as 100%. And that's not what any ex-gay ministry was actually seeing, though. So let's let's talk about that for a second. We have this guy, Frank Worthen, who becomes a believer. And maybe to start a ministry, we're not exactly sure what his motivations were. And it's always scary to try to attribute motivation to him. But if best we can get in his head, it seemed like he wanted to offer grace and help and hope to people in his circumstances as a gay man. And so somewhere he got the idea that if a person puts their faith in Christ, their sexual orientation is going to change. And then once you start down that road, it's almost like you have to find evidence or maybe sometimes even create evidence that that's happening. Maybe it's for the need of funding or just to gain a bigger platform. You start maybe shading the truth on some of the stories, maybe just exaggerating the numbers a bit. There's huge pressure to tell people what they wanted to hear. That's still true today, right? Yeah. And so when I was in the movement and I said that I used to be gay, which is something that I would say. There was equivocation in that that was built into that language because I used to be gay to me meant I used to be in a position where I might have been open to having sex with another guy, but now my convictions have changed and so I'm not looking for that anymore. But what people heard when I said I used to be gay was my sexual orientation has changed <laughs> when it hadn't shifted an iota. So the language gets slippery. And so you can say, I used to be gay, and that be accurate if you define the term in a certain way. But if what you mean is my sexual attractions have completely changed in a sustained way, what we found is that there aren't a lot of people who that is necessarily true of. We're not saying it's zero, but it's not many. And there was this pressure to have this kind of ex-gay script, right? I came to faith in Christ and now I'm a new person. My sexual desires have changed. And the cherry on top was to get married because that was maybe the best testimony. If you could get married and have kids, then you could show that God really changed you. 
those were the testimonies that got platformed. Everybody wanted to see, you know, and of course we'd all just be sitting there in the audience thinking, Oh, please don't parade out the wife and children. (laughs) (laughs) And of course the thing about those marriages is 70% of them ended in divorce. You know, it's very difficult to do a mixed orientation marriage. I've seen some very successful ones, but there was a lot of pressure on people to get married, just a huge amount. And probably there were some that regretted that decision. And there was pressure to redefine the terms and to use language in a slippery way so as to kind of be telling the truth, but only if you understood what you meant by it, right? And so you were saying your story is that you said I wasn't gay, but you didn't mean your sexual attractions had changed. You just meant that you were going to follow Jesus and not act out on your desires. Is that right? Yeah. And same thing if I said I've come out of homosexuality. You know, people would hear that as one thing, but the actual claim was much, much, much smaller of change. So, yeah, but that became a 40-year thing, a 40-year saga. And it wasn't until 2011 that Alan Chambers, the last president of Exist International, which was an umbrella organization with 270 other ministries under it, when Alan Chambers, the president of Exodus, admitted publicly that In his experience, 99.9% of Exodus clients had seen no change in their sexual orientation. 99.9. 99.9% was his number. And he later clarified that the 0.1% was one particular woman he had in mind who later clarified that she's still bisexual, but happily married to her husband. (laughs) Now, I suspect that that number was a little exaggerated because I have been able to track down about a dozen people who experienced something that could probably be called gay to straight orientation change, all but one of them are women. Now, I haven't called all million people who have gone through some form of conversion therapy or sexual orientation change efforts, but the numbers are small. And often when people did experience change, it was more of a change in how they perceived of themselves, identity and behavior, and less a change in what temptations looked like. Whenever I'm talking about these kind of issues with people, someone will undoubtedly bring up and I don't blame them. I mean, I've thought this too, and I'm curious how you will respond. They bring up 1 Corinthians 6. It says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so people read that and they say, okay, look, there are people here who are described as homosexual men who have sex with men. And that's what you were, but now you no longer are. And so people point to this and say, doesn't this teach us that people's sexual orientation, their sexual attractions can and do change by the power of God, the power of the gospel. Yeah. Well, certainly God can do anything. I am not one to put God in a box. You know, Um, experience has shown that normal spiritual growth for a gay person who becomes a Christian for the same sex attracted believer looks a lot like spiritual growth and sanctification and holiness for straight believers. You know, you get off of porn, you look the other way when tempted, you try not to save up images of faces and bodies for later retrieval, you have accountability, you got covenant eyes on your phone, and you may grow to a point where you're lusting less, 
and maybe even being tempted less, though I've had 80-year-old believers tell me that they are still shaken to the bone when a beautiful woman walks in the room. So I think we need to understand that what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6, he uses two particular words, arsenokoite and malakoi, to describe two types of people, one being the active and the other the passive partner in a male homosexual hookup. And he says that the believer is washed of that and are therefore called not to engage in that behavior. But nowhere does God promise that you won't be tempted going forward. If people say that, oh, you're no longer a homosexual, that's a homosexual word wasn't invented until the 19th century. Paul's talking about a certain kind of practice and saying that those tempted by that practice break off and and repent of that in becoming a Christian. I mean, I guess that makes sense because when you look at this list that we can probably all find ourselves on, and by no means is this list in 1 Corinthians 6 comprehensive. For example, it says greedy or slanders or something like that. I don't think when any of us become Christians, we would say, well, all of a sudden, all of our greedy desires have completely vanished and we're no longer greedy. And now we are generous with our resources at all times and all places. So maybe people have put a different spin on the homosexuality part than they have on the other sins in that same list. But in some sense, you know, you're contrasting caring and curing as far as how the church has approached homosexuals. Isn't curing better? I mean, wouldn't all of us of all of our (laughs) sins rather be cured? Yeah. So what's wrong with curing? You know, it'd be great. I don't know a gay person who hasn't asked God to make them straight at some point. I certainly prayed that prayer, but it's a question of expectations because we know in practice that curing is very rare. And in fact, even look at the Puritans. You look at John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin. He insists that there is not a single sin inside of you that you will ever be able to mortify completely, that it will always still be inside of you. You can't kill it in this life. That's not to be sought. It's not to be expected. Rather, we're actively trying to weaken it. Historically, Christians didn't think you could ever just turn a switch off and make sinful temptation go away. But what happens when we start giving people the expectation, and it can be so subtle, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, Greg, I know you're same-sex attracted now, but God's not going to leave you there. And they're trying to encourage me. But the only thing I or anybody like me would be able to hear in that is, Greg, if you were praying harder, believing harder and repenting deeply enough, God would have made you straight by now. And that's a cruel thing to say. It's an abusive thing to say, even unintentionally. It's like speaking to the leukemia patient, faith healer saying, believe God and you'll be healed. And so they're believing God and they're trusting God. And then what does that do when they don't get healed? is it damages the relationship with God because they were led to believe that God had promised something that he had not promised. Jesus never promised that we would not face temptation in this life. To the contrary, he promised it. And so we all then have our daily cross to pick up because there's something about Greg Johnson that has to die for Jesus to become alive inside of me. And daily pursuing Christ and seeking him and believing his gospel (laughs) because sinners are the only class of people Jesus came to save. You know, that's what it looks like. If there were a reliable cure, that'd be great. We haven't found it. (music) 
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Before we move on here, I want to make sure I'm tracking with you. Christians came alongside, cared for, showed compassion toward homosexuals, but didn't necessarily expect them to change. I'm sure they always knew that God could do whatever he wants, like you said, but that wasn't the expectation. Sometime in the mid-70s, that becomes the expectation, that people who are real Christians and really repenting, that they will change their orientation, their sexual desires will change. And you're pushing back and saying, putting those expectations on people, it's not biblical, it's not healthy, it's not helping people. What it causes them to do is hide. It causes people to lie. It causes people to go further into shame because maybe they're not doing it the right way or they're not doing it with enough sincerity. So if that's basically where we are thus far in the conversation, I want to bring up a conversation I had with Rosaria Butterfield. You're familiar with her. I'm sure she is pretty feisty. She's got some books. I really like her and respect her. But we were having a conversation and we started going back and forth uh, pretty heatedly on this topic of how much change can we expect of our sinful desires, no matter what they are. How much can we expect in this world, in this time before we meet Jesus? And she said to me, she said, Keith, look, if you found yourself constantly desiring to sleep with other women other than your wife, wouldn't you think that's a problem? Like, wouldn't you think, hey, I need to take a pause here, take a time out and get right with God? Because if I'm walking after Jesus and if I'm repenting of my sin and uh, learning to follow him, over time, those sinful inclinations, desires should start to decrease. So her point was that if a person goes around saying, hey, I'm gay, I'm identifying with my sin, I have these desires to disobey God in the sexual area of my life. Isn't that like a big yellow flag, at least, if not a red flag, that maybe there's something going on here? Because shouldn't those desires begin to decrease over time as we walk with Jesus? And, you know, I mean, I do think, I do hope, at least in my life, that I am growing in humility or growing in generosity. I do hope in my life that as slow and as painful as the process is, that I'm less proud than I was when I first became a Christian and I'm growing in humility. So how would you respond 
to that. And I guess if I just put it one more sentence, it is, how would you respond to the charge that by saying I am gay and by identifying with your sexual attractions, that you are minimizing the work of God in your life to change you? Well, the assumption behind the question is that successful growth and holiness looks like sexual temptation switching gender in that for me, the pursuit of holiness, I certainly would like to think I think about sex a lot less than when I was a brand new Christian. Some of that I would like to think is progressive sanctification. Some of that could be aging, right, absolutely. <laughs> getting older. I'll be 50 this year. So uh, feeling like doing something and not doing it and repeating that again and again and again and again does shape our character. And so I've had homoerotic longing every day of my life since I was 11. At some level, it's in there. Does that mean I'm actively lusting after men all the time? No, that's a different thing. But it's in there. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It might be weaker than it was, but only gay or same-sex attracted believers were told that spiritual growth would mean that they would be sexually tempted by different people. And I think that's aiming kind of low. You know, I think the pursuit of holiness is that we try not to cultivate sexual thoughts about anybody other than our spouse. But Rosaria, she has a unique story because she slept with men before she was a Christian and her sleeping with women was part of her feminist rebellion thing. So you're dealing with somebody who was bisexual before they were a Christian and then they become a Christian and then they can just view the attraction to women as sin and the other one to the husband as faithfulness. So I don't know that you can kind of universalize her experience. She's got a very unique testimony and is coming from a very different place. I get that. And so it sounds a little bit like if I hear you right, and I know you haven't heard the conversation that I had with her. So you're dependent upon me to communicate it. And I get that's not ideal. But it sounds as if you're saying that you agree with her in some ways, that over time, as we walk with God and surrender our life to him, that we will grow in holiness and we will grow in obedience, by no means perfectly, that we'll always have this struggle with indwelling sin. And that you have seen spiritual growth in this area of your life, in every area, but this area specifically of having attractions toward other men, which is in disobedience to God's will, that you have grown in that and you do desire it less and less. But on the other hand, you disagree with her in the sense that you're saying, well, yes, that's growth and holiness, but God never promised that I was going to all of a sudden have my sexual attractions completely change from men to women. That's an unhealthy expectation that God never promises. Yeah. You know, like I remember hearing a guy once say to another guy, same-sex attracted guy, and I think he was his discipler in college ministry, but he said, you know, I really pray that someday you'll be struggling with straight porn. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, no. That is not God's will. Somehow we missed the goal. <laughs> Somehow this guy just thinks in ministry, just thinks that, oh, that's the goal to switch who you're tempted to lust after. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's progress. Progress is actually in pursuing holiness to the Lord because he's worth it and trusting the gospel, trusting that he loves you enough to take care of you along the way. But yeah, Rosaria, she also uses a lot of language that, can also have a lot of equivocation in it. You know, she always avoids the question of whether she is still sexually attracted to women. She refuses to answer it. 
Yeah, and I could even tell in my conversation with her that she was very careful in how she phrased all that part of our conversation. And I would encourage people who are listening to you and I to go and listen to my conversation with her. I have a lot of respect for her, and I can tell even the way you talk about her that you do as well. And go listen to her explain herself. She's got lots of books out there. I want to stay on the same topic of your critics, but get away from Rosaria. It seems like you have quite a few critics. And one of the things I was really impressed by in your book, Still Time to Care, is how gracious you were toward them, how quick you were to acknowledge that they have some good arguments or legitimate questions that they're asking. So let's think of your critics that are fair-minded. In other words, there's a lot of crazy people out there who are just angry. And let's dismiss those for a second. What are some of the better objections that you've heard to your approach? Or what are some of the things your critics are saying that you're having to wrestle with and that you think are legitimate questions? Are there any? Do you see that your critics have some good points? Well, they have some good concerns that I would, of course, share. You know, when talking about sexual identity, you can mean so many different things. When a believer says that they're gay or same-sex attracted, that could mean any of a number of things. And oftentimes those nuances are lost in translation. And so when somebody expresses concern about gay identity, identifying as such, you know, they may be thinking in terms of building your life on this thing, that it's going to be your identity and the core of who you are. And of course, any Christian has to say, that's Jesus' job, (laughs) your sinful temptation's job. But I do think there is some validity that we have to be careful, particularly if you're going to adopt the term gay, you have to be careful to nuance exactly what you mean by it. You have to be careful because the LGBT community does have liturgies of their own that can begin to eclipse stories. You know, the LGBT narrative is, I was closeted and now I'm liberated. And the Christian narrative is, I was lost and now I'm found. And it's something that all of these historic figures emphasize, that while sex is something very close to the soul of our being, that's a very important thing, it's not the ultimate thing. And so, yeah, I think there's some validity in saying, yeah, you need to be careful. I also think you need to be very careful, all of us, to make sure we hear what somebody is saying and ask questions and not judge them based on terminology. That's been my big thing, because I think we end up injuring a lot of young believers when we do that. Yeah, there's certainly concerns and concerns on the other side, on the left, on the affirming side. You know, they do have some very valid concerns about the suicide rate among LGBT youth and how it is higher among religious LGBT youth than among non-religious. You know, they've got some very real concerns that Christians have to address and should also share those concerns. So I think my critics on both the right and the left have some valid concerns. To those on the right, I tend to caution them about building a fence around the law. The heart of legalism is that we build a fence around God's law because we don't want anybody to get too close and accidentally sin. And so when the Bible says that gay sex is a sin, that's pretty clear. That's the law. But it doesn't say you can't be honest about your sexual orientation if that's a category your culture uses to classify people. Prohibiting that is building a fence around the law, which is inherently legalistic. I want to go back and push on this idea of the language. It seems like when somebody calls themselves gay, they can have all kinds of meanings to it. And one that I think you're saying is illegitimate. And in this, it's weird because you agree with your critics, but they won't accept that agreement, it sounds like. And and here's what I mean is that I don't think you in your book, unless I missed it, you never call yourself a gay Christian. 
You're open to that language being used and you try to explain what people mean by it, but you're really clear in the book that no one, including you, including gay Christians, should build their identity on anything other than Jesus. If you're talking about your core spiritual identity, it is built on what God has done for you in Jesus and who he has made you in Jesus, that you are a new creation. When you use the term identity, sexual identity, you're not talking about that. And yet, For some reason, and I can't quite figure out why, people, I don't know if they don't believe you or if I'm missing something, but when you talk about sexual identity or gay identity, if you don't mean at the core of who I am, that's Jesus, what do you mean? We have a lot of identities. Identity is complex. You know, I can be a Washingtonian by birth and a St. Louisan by adoption. I could be a Democrat or a Republican or an independent. I could be an American or I could be some other nationality. You know, I'm a diabetic. There are all these things that are true about me. I'm single. I have never had any physical children. I have had a great many spiritual children. All of these are part of my story. A friend of mine who has been a recovering alcoholic for over 20 years still calls himself and thinks of himself as an alcoholic because he knows that he has a problem and that if he drinks anything, he will go insane and just fall off the wagon. And he's not adopting that identity as an alcoholic in order to glorify drunkenness. He's actually just trying to be honest about his struggle. He's not celebrating alcoholism, you know? (laughs) And so I think that's part of the thing is when somebody says that they're same-sex attracted or they're gay, are they saying this is something they celebrate or are they just acknowledging that this is a genuine part of their experience? because they have to be known. Otherwise, if you make them hide that part of themselves, then the shame grows and the loneliness grows, and that sets them up for a whole lot of sin and despair. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think Christians have a pretty bad habit of getting more upset about sins they don't struggle with than sins they do. Like we extend ourselves grace on sins that we struggle with but we're less gracious toward those sins that we don't. One of the things you say is that Christians who are straight, they unintentionally, we'll assume it's unintentionally, maybe practice kind of emotional or spiritual abuse toward gay Christians. And I don't know that we even are aware that maybe we're doing that. So can you help us see that so that we can all examine ourselves and say, hey, am I unintentionally doing this to my friends that are gay? Well, it's like the when you tell them that, yeah, you're gay, but God won't leave you there. What you've just told them unintentionally is that if they were more faithful, then they would be straight. You know, when we police people's language, because language terminology choices do not predict faithfulness to God. A friend of mine who worked almost exclusively with same-sex attracted men would tell me that he would have a 45-year-old man come into his office and say, oh, I'm not gay, but he slept with another guy every week for the last three months and hates himself for it, wants to repent of it, doesn't know how, but he's saying, I'm not gay. And then you can have like their 25-year-old come in and say, oh, I'm gay. And then it finds out that he's never been sexually active and has no intention of being so because he's a Christian. And so you can't predict that, you know, There's a legalism that always wants measurable results. And sometimes I think Christians think if somebody will just stop saying gay and start saying struggle with same-sex attraction, that that would be measurable spiritual growth. And therefore, we want that to happen. 
But that's not spiritual growth. That's just changing terminology. It doesn't change anything at the heart level. Man, I think that's really good. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the ex-gay movement and how they manipulated the terminology and language, maybe to bolster statistics or to make them feel better about their ministries or whatever. I don't know the motivation, but nonetheless, it kind of goes down this slippery slope of legalism of changing the outward, but not the heart. And so if we're talking here about how do well-intentioned Christians emotionally or spiritually abuse their gay Christian friends, one is to assume that they will change if they just believe enough. Another is that we police their language and we decide we're going to tell them what the proper language is for them to use to describe their experience, right? Yeah, that doesn't go over well with any other group. No, not at all. Yeah, this is a huge need to listen to learn, to not view your gay sibling who's trying to walk faithfully with Jesus as a problem to solve. You know, there are Mm. two approaches that you can take when you realize that somebody's gay. If they're Christians and walking with God, you can look at them and say, wow, that means that they may never marry or have kids. That means they may be really lonely. That means they may be dealing with a lot of shame and you can feel compassion for them and move close to them and want to know them and love them and be loved by them. Or you can look at them as the embodiment of iniquity because you're comparing their same-sex attraction to some heinous sexual sin you did when you cheated on your wife or whatever. And so then you try to help make sure that we're really repenting enough and we're really owning our sin. And trust me, we're owning our sin. (laughs) But, you know, so you're constantly trying to make sure that we're being serious enough and we're fighting enough. And so then, I mean, you're a pastor, I'm a pastor. My worst regrets as a pastor are of people early in my ministry that I tried to fix and how that destroyed my relationship with them and made them feel manipulated. And when Christians fall into that mindset of viewing people as projects, it's really going to go poorly for everybody. Yeah, I think there's so much wisdom in that. I have a friend who is a counselor and a pastor, and he says that when people come into his office and they're trying to fix their problem, it usually doesn't work. But if he can help them just follow Jesus, that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes their problem gets fixed. So when we help people follow Jesus, that's our goal. When it comes to our gay friends, our goal isn't to make them straight. Our goal is to help them follow Jesus, just like we need help following Jesus. So I really like that. Hey, in the book, you talk about straight people who have a polygamous orientation, and it's pretty funny. And at first, I didn't quite get it, to be honest. But then I started thinking about, yeah, I guess straight people do have a polygamous orientation. Can you just unpack that a little bit, what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think back at creation, God created Adam and Eve. And at creation, our best understanding is that sexual longing would exist within the bounds of marriage. You're not coveting your neighbor's wife, just your own. And when we talk about heterosexuality, we define heterosexuality as being attracted to the opposite sex, meaning more than one. And Nate Collins has argued, and I think he's probably right, that human beings were not created before the fall to be heterosexual, meaning generally sexually attracted to a whole bunch of people, but rather uniheterosexual, that we were designed for sexual feelings to exist and to flourish within marriage. And so the problem with heterosexuality is its polygamous nature, its 
polyamorous nature, if you will, that your sexual attraction to your neighbor's wife is not morally neutral. It's indwelling sin, taking advantage of your sexuality to tempt you to covet something that God has not given you. Now, granted, I am not arguing that we need to set up X straight ministries to help straight men no longer be attracted to women other than their wives. We tried that with the ex-gay movement. It didn't work well. But what straight people need is the same thing. They need to know that they have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that there is no condemnation for those who are in him, that all their sins have been forgiven and to learn to live and trust that grace and to recognize that the heart level, that sin is always with us, tempting us to covet what is not ours. And so we're not that much different. No, we're not much different at all. I really appreciate you spending some time. I really appreciate your book, Still Time to Care. It has so much to offer. I've never really read a book quite like it. And I would encourage people to get it because I think that it will open your eyes to maybe some of the ways that you need to change as you interact with your gay Christian friends. And it gives the church a blueprint of something to do and not be passive, not sit on the sidelines because we're scared to get involved, but to engage our fellow Christians who have a different orientation than we do and to walk alongside them, to love them, to befriend them, to encourage them, just like we will look to them to encourage us and be our friend and together we can follow Jesus. Would you mind praying for us as we close? Maybe you could pray for our churches that we would love people well. Maybe you could pray for people who might be listening to this who are struggling with same-sex attraction, unsure what to do with it. I don't know. However God would lead you. Would you pray for us? I'd love to. Yeah, Father, I thank you for, for Keith. Thank you for the crossing. Thank you for this podcast. I pray, Father, that you would shine your grace upon whoever's out there listening to this that needs to hear it now. Lord, maybe they're, they're, they've been struggling and they've never told a soul and their biggest step is going to be to find the courage to tell one person about their story and to risk that. And for others, Lord, maybe they're being convicted right now that they have not loved uh, people well and that they need to go and be reconciled and ask forgiveness. Um, maybe, Lord, I pray for the parents whose children have, have walked away from the church over these very issues. I pray, Father, that you would have compassion and that you would teach your churches how to love gay people because Jesus loves gay people. And we never seem to be able to say that father, I pray you would help us to say that, uh, that, that, that when we talk about gay people in the pulpit, it wouldn't always be the bad example um, that we would tell the stories of people like Henry now. Uh, you know, that we would learn from them and, uh, and, and grow in the ability to walk in self-sacrificial obedience like they did that they would even inspire us. Lord, have mercy on your church. Uh, there's much for us to grieve over, Lord, but, but I do have hope, Lord. Uh, hope in you that your gospel is so beautiful. It is that treasure uh, worth everything. And so I thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.